You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. We're fresh off the heels of a presidential election, and we now know that Joe Biden has been nominated as president-elect, and Kamala Harris is now vice president-elect. And Black women are receiving a lot of praise, rightfully so, for our part in making that happen in terms of organizing and just showing up at the polls. And like I said, it's rightful, but it definitely has me thinking a lot about what this means or what it should mean for black women. I'm definitely glad that Trump is not supposed to be getting another term. Who knows what's going to happen with him refusing to concede, but that's another story. Um, I'm glad he didn't get reelected and I'm glad to see Biden and Harris in office and black women receiving credit for their work. But I do question what this actually means in a material way for black women or in terms of policy or structures or institutions that don't have black women in mind or don't or aren't in our favor will there be things that come of this that reflect the work that we did to put biden and harris in office and reflecting on this has given me a renewed motivation to you know, kind of consider my investment in this country. Because if I'm being honest, I don't really believe that there will be substantial changes in favor of Black women just based on the history of this country. And the whole thing just has me thinking about what it means to be Black American in this country or Black American outside of this country or just in general how your Blackness and your nationality impact you regardless of what country you're in. And I'm thinking about the time I had to go to the immigration office when I was in Italy, because if you stay longer than the three month allotted time on a normal visa, you have to apply for a permit to stay. So I was at the immigration office to apply for a permit to stay. And the immigration office was packed full of people. When I got there, I sat down and almost immediately a guy started talking to me. And I found out this guy was from Nigeria. And when he found out I was from the US, he got really excited because I was the first U.S. black woman he'd ever spoken to. And he asked me what I was doing in Italy and, you know, why I was there and so on and so forth. And when I told him it was was school related, he was so proud. This is what he told me. He was really proud of me and, you know, happy to see me being successful and things like that. Really nice, really sweet guy. So naturally, I asked him about his story because you know we're sitting in the immigration office nobody's going anywhere anytime soon and he tells me that he made a journey from Nigeria all the way to Libya and it took two months and not everyone who started out with him actually made it to Libya and once they got there they were put on a some kind of boat and for the life of me I couldn't figure out what kind of boat he was talking about and I didn't have good service while I was sitting there so I couldn't google it but when I was when I finally did get out of there I was able to google it and see that he was basically talking about a huge raft like a blow-up raft but a really really big one and they pack a lot of people on this raft and they're it's it's like a raft there's no walls to the boat it's it's honestly when you think about how vast the the sea is and the ocean is it's kind of scary to <laughs> to think about being on this raft in the middle of the sea and you know going to a destination because there's no sense of safety but anyway so he's put on a raft with lots of other people that when they arrive on the shores of Italy, he said they put them in camps. And when I said, who's they? He said the white people. And essentially he arrived in Italy to request asylum from his country. And that's why he was in the immigration office that day. So I sat and watched, I arrived in the morning time and I sat and watched as the white immigrants were called and were serviced and finally after about seven hours of sitting there the guy next to me was called and he goes into the office to speak with the immigration people and he comes out a few minutes later and 
when he comes out, he is deflated. All the vibrance that he had formerly was gone. And he told me that his request for asylum got denied because they didn't believe his story. And it was heartbreaking because he was so hopeful and so determined. And though I can't technically prove it, my good sense tells me that the denial of asylum had a lot to do with his nationality and him being Nigerian and Europeans xenophobia. And I'm reminded of when a professor of mine told me that everybody hates their own Africans. And so in the U.S., it looks like the descendants of American chattel slavery having a harder time because we're the quote-unquote Africans in America and we're seen as a burden to the system we're lazy we have all these welfare kids and we're just looking for a handout but in Europe that looks like them being xenophobic to um, continental Africans that they will be considered their own Africans and in that context continental Africans are considered a burden to the European system because You know, they're seen as asylum seekers who come there unable to support themselves and having to depend on other people and just being a drain on their system. However, me, in my experience as a black American person, when I go over there and they find out I am from the U.S., I get treated better because once again, everybody hates their own Africans and that instance in the immigration office made me think a lot about my privilege but also about how it's really complex because I do have privilege as a U.S. citizen in terms of being a citizen of a country that is imperialistic and has secured that privilege as a as like well, or has secured that privilege through exerting power and its own will in unethical ways over other countries. And that's what makes it like complex because it is privilege, but it was gained through unethical ways. And also being a second-class citizen within that country. So not having protected rights and having to fear for our lives as black people in America. So it's really complex and that's what today's episode is about. I am talking to a woman who decided she was no longer going to play the game anymore. She was no longer going to do it. She was no longer going to be in the rat race. She was no longer going to let America dictate her life chances or the, the quality of life that she had and decided to plan her black sit and decided to leave so is in the process of planning to leave the country permanently and you all know that I have a not so secret agenda of like trying to inspire people to think outside of the U.S. box and consider what life could have for us outside the U.S. so I hope that listening to this episode inspires you to do just that even if it's just thinking about it and you never actually carry it out I just want to spark something just a spark Joining us today, we have Krishan Wright, who is an award-winning certified digital marketing expert, an avid traveler, and the creator of Blacksit Global. Thank you for joining us today, Krishan. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm excited to have you. Okay, so let's jump right into it. Tell me or tell us about some of your upbringing and maybe like how it informed your experiences as an avid traveler. So did you grow up in an environment where Black people were empowered or able to travel internationally? Uh, no, <laughs> actually. So my I grew up in the Bronx. I'm from the Boogie Down. Yay. And uh, Co-op City, more specifically. So Co-op City is actually a city, literally, within the Bronx. And so we had our own schools, our own um, supermarkets. Everything was self-contained. Uh, so there was very little reason for me to leave uh, at that time. And from my parents, my mother's from Florida originally. My father uh, was born in the South. And so they came up during the Great Migration. 
And so I have a lot of Southern roots, but um, aside from the migration, everybody pretty much was domestic. Um, Mm -hmm. But as a child, I'm the youngest of three and very bookish. And I would spend my time, I had a globe in my room and I would spend it all the time. And for some reason, I put my sights on New Zealand. So as a child, I used to journal about what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, okay, I'm going to be a corporate lawyer living in New Zealand when I'm 26. (laughs) I don't even know where that came from. And when I turned 26, I had graduated with my master's and I had my son. (laughs) So, you know, kind of got a little bit there, but, you know, that's how life happens. And then finally, I made it three years ago. I visited New Zealand for the first time on a solo trip. And it literally just changed everything. Yes, I love solo trips. I think I took my first, yeah, I took my first solo trip in 20, 2017. And it, it is life changing because you just, I feel like you learn so much about yourself and it kind of empowers you because you're, you know, in this foreign country and you're finding your way. So yeah, solo travel is pretty great. So what inspired you to um, look to traveling and living abroad was um, as a child, you were bookish and you were reading a lot. Yes. So I always, it's interesting. I would read a lot of books and, you know, where I grew up, it was just very diverse. And when I went to school, I went to a Catholic school in high school, they had like an international club and a few of the, the children that were in that program took trips to other countries, but we didn't have, my family didn't have that kind of money. And so Mm -hmm. even when I went to college, I was so focused on my education and then um, just developing as a young woman and being on my own and working as I worked uh, and put myself through school. I just didn't have the time, you know, in retrospect, I I wish that I had uh, studied abroad, but I worked full time and went to school full time so that I didn't have a bunch of loans when I came out of school. And so that was just my primary focus. But I, in a, in a way, I don't regret it because now that I've approached it being uh, a lot older and more seasoned, I have a greater sense of self and the resources to kind of be and enjoy that. So about 10 years ago, I got divorced and was adjusting to being a single mom. My children were much younger at that time, and traveling abroad just wasn't on the radar or horizon at that time. And then as a single woman, again, I think I defaulted to feeling like I needed to have someone in my life in order to do those things and travel abroad. And then I remember clear as day, I was at the beach at the Jersey Shore, And I said, you know what, Krishan, enough is enough. Like, you can be your own hero in your story and craft a different narrative. So I went home that day and I bought the plane ticket to New Zealand and that was it. (laughs) And that's really great. It goes to show you that um, you can start even later in your life. Not saying that you were old when you went, but... For a lot of people who have childhood dreams that don't exactly go as planned, it can be easy to get deterred and then to give up on the dream. So you can literally start at any time, right? You can, like you said, your own hero, right? So um, you are, you have a platform called Blackxit Global. So let's talk about Blacksiting and it's really kind of a good time to talk about it because a lot of people have been not happy about, you know, what's going on in the country now, even though you could argue that there's been things going awry for a while in this country, for a long time in this country. But um, and we're in the midst of figuring out who's who won the election and all this kind of stuff. So let's talk about this concept or this idea of a Blacksit. How would you define Blacksit? Mm, That's a great question. And I think it is subject to whomever you ask. (laughs) So for some people, it is feeling that Blacksit means Black people who are primarily from the U.S., let's say, um, making their journey back to the continent of Africa. 
And that is one definition. Then I think there are those who take a bigger global view. And I think that's more or less where I sit in that as members of the African diaspora, our spores are sprinkled all over this globe and there's no place that we can't inhabit. And so it's just freeing your mind and liberating yourself to what's possible. And so if you're not happy where you are and whatever reason that is, and I definitely believe that everything starts with doing the internal work to understand what's going on versus taking external stimuli and projecting it because otherwise you can blax it to somewhere else and then you just have the same experience. Um, so I think that it just takes a lot of knowing yourself, doing a lot of work and thinking through. Um, but as, as I talk about on the podcast, it's people who have left either from fear, right? Fear of police brutality, frustration, microaggressions, discrimination in the workplace, marginalization. It's either or, and they make that time and they make that decision. So it's either they've had enough of just existing and not living and making the bold choice to bet on themselves and go to a place, start anew and thrive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you think, what would you say are some of the benefits of Black American people uh, black sitting or moving abroad? Oh, I think it's a huge unlock. So in the States, let's make a comparison. So in the States, we all know that there are a lot of stats that are to our dis- disadvantage. So Black wealth is vastly there's a huge gap between where we are to our white counterparts. When you talk about high level employment opportunities, you know, I was in corporate America for a number of years and being one of the only a lot of times at the table, at the boardroom and not seeing myself reflected. And it's like, oh, we have one. Let's check the box. Right. And then we look at blue collar jobs or in the sense now with the pandemic, our first responders, our essential workers are primarily black and brown people. And I, my brothers are essential workers. There is a lot of honor in that. But if you ask any of these people what they wanted to do, they may have wanted to be... um, at a CEO or a business owner or own their own beauty shop, whatever that is. But because of a variety of factors, that opportunity wasn't available. And in the U.S., it's saturated. We don't have a lot. I mean, think about black, black banks. Those numbers are dwindling. We look at franchises. Franchises primarily are owned by white people. There are very few opportunities for us. So the benefits of moving abroad is that you can free yourself from the construct that you have existed in your environment in the States. And these there are people who are going to different countries and creating their own opportunities. So for example, Gabriel Lavelle, who I interview on the Blacks of Global podcast, he was working a regular regular IT job. And then two years ago, he left, moved to South Africa, and now owns a 10-room luxury hotel. Wow. Exactly. And so there are ways, and he started that business. Let's, (laughs) if you listen to the episode, he did the, the work to start the business, the paperwork, while he was still living in Brooklyn. You know, there, there's so many opportunities. There's so many people that either they go for a sabbatical and then it becomes a long-term stay. Um, For example, one of my other guests was on an airplane, met someone, and now is a general manager of a luxury hotel in Morocco. I mean, there, if you free yourself and you liberate yourself, it's like um, that movie, The Matrix. (laughs) And you Mm -hmm. allow yourself to... Free yourself of the construct that you've already existed in, the matrix, and then allow yourself mm-hmm. to imagine and sit in the in the land, in the realm of possibility. 
you can create opportunity where you thought it was not. There was not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what do you think um, or do you have thoughts on what might make it challenging for people, for specifically Black American people to, you know, think outside of this box that is the United States? What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. Mindset is the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, when you think about people in a box and then the lid being taken off the box, it's like you can jump out, but people still think that the lid's still on, right? Mm-hmm. The jar's still closed. You can see someone on the other side of that jar, <laughs> of that box, Mm-hmm. But for some reason, you think, oh, that that person was lucky, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the reality is, you know, you don't have to be wealthy to make a move abroad. You don't have to be exceptional, <laughs> right? We have enough examples. We had Josephine Baker, James Baldwin, modern day Tina Turner, There are people who realized that living in this construct, living in this consumerism, uh, individualistic society runs counter to, in my opinion, who we are as a collective. You know, we call each other, we language each other, and that harkens back to where we originated in Africa, my brother, my sister, right? But when you're in the U.S., it's me, fi, me, (laughs) right? So that is counter to who we are. And then the U.S. does, uh, well, now it's probably a little bit challenging, but it does a, a great job with marketing and making people believe that we're a superpower, even though we're not. We have so much debt. We, as a generation, of people, and I'm talking about all Americans, have less generational wealth than the previous generation. And those were a generation where one parent worked, primarily Mm. the father. And so when you look at it, I had to make an assessment, essentially, is I can work another 20 some odd years and, you know, I guess have a couple million in the bank. And that is great. But then when you think about healthcare, taxes on that money, buying a home, because I'll have to have a place to live, a car, all of these things, that money disappears very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then that same amount of money, when you take it and you go to another country where you can live very comfortably for a thousand, maybe less, it I did the math and it's like for every month that I'm here, that's three to four months somewhere else. And so it doesn't take much to do it. It's just allowing yourself to imagine something different for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like to your point, I feel like if it wasn't clear before this pandemic has really um, exemplified the individualism and, um, consumerism that is so rampant in this country because everything's been about getting the economy back open so people can buy, 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 and you know people not wanting to wear masks even though it's for the collective good. So if it wasn't clear before, you have a great example now. So yeah. and when you yeah. look at other countries who and how they their responses have been different. So for example, I went and traveled to Australia and New Zealand actually right before lockdown. And you look at what Jacinda Ardern did in New Zealand, the prime minister, she shut it down, created a bubble. Everybody knew, and it was like a level system. And and then everybody knew like, hey, me wearing a mask and me quarantining is not only for my personal safety, but it's the safety of someone else. You look at Italy, which led in terms of COVID deaths prior to it really having a lot of inroads in the U.S., you know, we saw body bags and things like that. They locked it down and they were able to contain it. But also, and I have a number of members that are in Italy, they were having masks and PPE delivered to their homes from the government. They were receiving money 
to offset, you know, the the inconvenience. There were a lot of things that were done in other nations like Canada that was not even on the radar. In the U.S., some people who qualified for a stimulus check received, what was it? I don't even know, $1,200 in March. And that was it. Never mind the small business owners who are the engine of our economy, not corporations. Small business owners are the back end, backbone of our economy, but yet they had to buy their own PPE, which was scarce. A lot of people purchased things that were like hand sanitizers that they found out later were poisonous. You know, there was just our frontline workers who were working and having to reuse their masks because there was a shortage. But yet we claim that we have the best healthcare system in the world. We have the more resources than any other uh, land. If that's the case, then why are there 225,000 people who are no longer here from a virus? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. It, it It's really shameful. Like, and I don't even know that I'm surprised because if you understand the history of this country, then you understand, you know, what it's about and whose who's life is more valuable. Um, so I can't say I'm surprised, but it's it still makes us look shameful on, on the world stage. Um, Absolutely. And that's the challenge. It's like for people like us who are unfortunately the few in a sense, because when you look at it, there are a lot of people who do not travel and it's not because they don't have a desire to travel. And in a sense, it's not even because they're not resourced enough to travel, although it is expensive to travel from the States, which is a whole nother uh, conversation, but it's because our, our economy, our society works to keep everyone on that hamster wheel. So other countries, you have six weeks vacation minimum. Right. So that's why you go and I'm from New York City originally. You'll go to New York City and you'll see all of these European visitors because that is the thing. I, I when I went to New Zealand right before I was able uh, I was about to get on the plane. I met a gentleman who's a firefighter and he's like, oh, uh, he was uh, scuba diving. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I have to go back to work. I've been off for the past six weeks. Like, what? Right. And you see store owners doing that and things like that. But here they keep you on this hamster wheel and people are lucky to get maybe five days or two weeks vacation. And because we're so tethered to our mini computers in our back pocket 24-7, the expectation is for you to stay connected even when you're supposed to be on your own time. And even if no one tells you that, you still in the back of your mind feel that you, I need to check an email. I need to make sure everything's going to be okay. And that is, it leads to exhaustion. And so now with the pandemic, I think more and more people, because they have to work uh, from home and they're dealing with, you know, sometimes uh, having children at home and they don't have those other things to kind of distract them from their day to day. You know, you can't go to the bars accessible and all those other things that kind of distract them from the fact that they're not happy with their existence. They're confronted with so many hard realities about what this country really is. And that's why I'm seeing, you know, over 4,000 people in this Facebook group and in listening to the show, because people are realizing that it's broken. But you know what? It's not broken. It's operating the way it was designed to. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Your show is relatively new and you've already accumulated quite a bit, uh, quite an audience. And I think that speaks to the fact that black people are fed up. (laughs) Yes. 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 Much to my surprise. And honestly, I had wanted to, I wanted to be a podcaster about six years ago, called myself doing, (laughs) but that's all another story. Um, And then I revisited it and primarily the impetus for it was the the death of Amard Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And I fell into a depression uh, and also the replaying of images of the murders on TV did put me in a state of post-traumatic stress disorder because I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, I was getting very irritable, 
I was hypersensitive. I had just moved and I live in the same community, but just moved a few doors down and I became very suspicious of everyone around me. And I knew that that was not normal Mm -hmm. and I needed to take control and start to filter, to start to eliminate media sources and not look, you know, filter who's speaking to me, filter what I see on my feed and get control of my mind again. And in that, I said, okay, I had a decision to make. I needed to channel what was negative into something positive. And that really was the impetus for Blacks at Global because I knew I was on my own personal journey. And that's mm-hmm. where I spent a lot of time prepping my finances, my family, and all that thing, all those things, and thinking, you know what? I'm just gonna put it out there and see if there's anybody like me who feels the same. And much to my surprise, <laughs> there are a lot of people, people who feel the same way. <laughs> Yeah. And you made a good point about like filtering the things that you ingest. Um, When I lived abroad in 2018, it was for six months. And that was uh, not even just because I was abroad, but the, the fact that I was not faced with hearing news about Trump all the time. Like he was, he was always in the news cycle. That was some of the most peaceful (laughs) months (laughs) that I have had because I just wasn't flooded with news about the latest crazy thing that Trump has done. So yeah, it's really important to be cognizant of, you know, what you're ingesting and the negativity and just the general awfulness of that, you know, can come from this country. So yeah, so you um, have, you've, talked about how you're planning your own black sit. So yes. um, how did you, what inspired you to do this? If you feel like you haven't already answered this, but specifically kind of what inspired you to go for it and start planning your own black sit? Oh, that day that I was supposed to come back uh, to the States from New Zealand, I, I'm not a crier and I bawled my eyes out. <laughs> I think for a couple of reasons. One, because I finally did it. It was something that was in my heart for a long, long time since I was a little girl. And the fact that I did it myself and I was my own hero, it was just like an astonishment <laughs> and amazement of what I had accomplished and what I learned about myself. And then realizing, and New Zealand is such a beautiful country. The people are so welcoming and uh, it's such a rich history there. It's my happy place. And I've been back, uh, as I mentioned, I've been there now twice in the past three years. It's a long flight, but it's worth it. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. um, I realized that it was, you know, you only go around this life once, it's not a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know what? By the time my daughter graduates, I will have lived half of my, well, hopefully if I live <laughs> as long as my parents right, right. live, I will have lived half of my life in the U.S. And how do I want the rest of it to live? Because a lot of people think, oh, when I retire, I'm going to travel and I'm going to visit other countries. But you know what? The reality is we get older every day. And so this body right now is not going to be the same body 20 years from now, 10 years from now. And so I said, you know what? I'm not going to wait. And I, when I travel, I often realize that people in other countries are physically more well-conditioned than those of us in the States. The food is better. The quality of food is better. The sources of food is better. The people are more active and don't live a sedentary lifestyle. They practice um, more mindfulness and are more environmentally conscious. And so everything around them just harkens back to the collective. And I, and like I said, it's not all countries I haven't visited uh, a lot of countries, but in the countries I have journeyed to, that's been my experience. And so I knew I wanted more of that in my life. And I didn't want to wait 20 some odd years in order to have that happen. So originally I thought it was going to be, and I do still think New Zealand is where I want to plant myself. 
I have probably a little bit of challenges, perhaps based on my age at the time that I decide to go. But I'm I'm working on my plan B. I took a great course, um, a move abroad course, and uh, and I loved that. And it helped me actually. It's Deirdre Amola's move abroad master course. It helped me develop a new plan. And now I'm executing and preparing that plan. And along the lines with interviewing such wonderful guests on the show, I'm adding countries to the list. So I, I think I'm going to be more nomadic for a few years before I settle down. And that's okay. Okay, so you just kind of affirmed me in a way because <laughs> I have been thinking about like taking a year and just going to travel some more. And I couldn't figure out if I wanted to do that or um, tr- try to transition into living abroad um, more permanently. And you just saying that kind of affirms that you can do both. Why not be nomadic for a little while? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, you know, I have in my journey, I've been preparing myself and especially with COVID giving me more time to think through and run a lot of scenarios and I'm introverted by nature. So I spend a lot of time in my head, (laughs) but me too. (laughs) See, you understand. (laughs) But I think for me, I've been running my finances and scenarios to allow me to have, if I so choose to have an extended amount of time where if I don't want to work, I don't have to. And so I'm developing and using this time to test and learn and plant seeds so that when I do actually leave in two and a half years, I've worked out a lot of the the challenges while I'm still in the U.S. Um, But needless to say, you know, I know that as a fearless global traveler, that there'll be other um, challenges that I might encounter, but I think it's just taking stock of who you are and knowing that you have a place in this world. A lot of times as Black people, we feel that, especially in the States where we're made to feel like an outsider in our own country, that we, some, internalize that and think that the possibilities are limited when they're not. No one mm-hmm. is limited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, okay, so you mentioned challenges. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what would you say are some of the challenges, common challenges for people who might want to black sit or maybe even some of your own personal cha- um, challenges in your own like journey and planning your black sit? Yeah, a lot of it is fear. A lot of people think that they need to have a job before they move abroad. And that is not the case. Uh, family and friends, they feel that they need to stay for a variety of reasons because of children or aging parents. In my case, I have both. And I've been using this time to prep my mom, who was very much against <laughs> me moving abroad. And in, in, I mean, we all know 2020 has been a dumpster fire. <laughs> and so now she's like, go, girl, go. <laughs> You know, she's on board because she now sees what I had been talking about all this time. Mm -hmm. And as far as my children are concerned, my son is 20. He's a young adult and he's coming into his own as a young man. And so I just remember how I was at that age. And no matter what my parents told me or my mom in this case, I was going to do what I was going to do. So I have to respect that as his mom. And for my daughter, while I would love for her to accompany me and go to college abroad, she very much wants to, at this stage, stay in the States, Um, even though she's both Mm. my children have have been to more countries than I have traveled to. Actually, she's in the Dominican Republic right now. Um, But she wants to stay in the States, and I respect that. And so... I will be using, you know, FaceTime and texting and all the other things to stay connected. But again, I think to answer your question, there are so many ways for us to stay connected now, more so than when, like I said, with the example of 
James Baldwin or Josephine Taylor or Josephine Baker, excuse me. Mm-hmm. These people, I mean, back in the day, you just had pen and paper. <laughs> you wrote a letter to your family and said, hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Now you can just grab your phone and talk to anyone, WhatsApp and all that stuff. So there's really not a barrier. It's mm-hmm. just, again, liberating your mind and freeing up that mental space to get back to that part of yourself when you were a kid and you could think you could do anything and mm-hmm. be that fearless, bold person. That's what you have to tap into. That's what's mm-hmm. going to help you be successful in your move abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of having children, I don't have children myself, but I, I feel like for a lot of people who may be thinking about this, it, it's probably a consideration if they have specifically smaller children. So do you think if you had smaller children that would impact um, your willingness to, you know, attempt a black sit or, or live abroad? If I had to, if I had to do it over, I wish I would have done it when I first thought about it. So when my mm-hmm. son was about, um, He was about 18 months or so, and this was around the time where we dealt with another hot mess election, Gorby Bush, and I spent the first 10 years of my uh, career was in politics, actually, and I knew the writing was on the wall then, and I wanted to move to Canada, and for a variety of reasons, that did not happen, and then I kind of put it in in the back burner. But knowing what I know now and knowing how, from an educational perspective, our children are being done a disservice by continuing to be educated in the U.S., the education that my children have received, and they are in, you know, number one school districts, you know, when I had a home, paying a lot of taxes, paled in comparison to what I had when I was a poor child growing up in the Bronx, (laughs) you know, I had, uh, we had our own band and real uh, instruments, not recorders. (laughs) You know, I played Carnegie Hall when I was 12 years old. You know, there were so many opportunities that I had that my children don't have or that you have to pay hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars in order for your children to have. And just from a language perspective, you go to other countries and most people and children speak multiple language, multiple languages. And in the United States, I mean, people can barely speak, quote unquote, proper English, right? Right, Or or grammar. And it's, and even, you know, in a layer deeper from a historical perspective, our history, our contributions as Black people to this country that we built you get relegated to Black History Month and it's only talking about Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Mm -hmm. leaving the contributions of so many people, hidden figures that are, you know, erased. And even like for me, I studied African-American history when I was in college and I learned a lot, but there's still, as an adult, growing and learning more continually because it's a deliberate effort to erase that. So we feel and get reinforced that we're drags on the system when it's the furthest thing from the truth. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, I feel like for people who have small children and they are considering moving abroad, this is the best time to move. One of my guests recently moved from New Jersey to the Tolfa mountain area of Italy. And her son is 12. And he's now fluent in Italian. Uh, One of my other guests who recently, I say about a little over a year, moved to Costa Rica. And her child is in a uh, multi-language Montessori school in Mm -hmm. Costa Rica. And that's, you know, another one that's in Belgium and her children are learning French. If you were in the States and you wanted to have your children immersed in a foreign language, you would have to pay hundreds of dollars to have a private tutor because in the school, they're just going to teach for the test. You're going to get 45 minutes. And I mean, I took Spanish for eight, nine years. I couldn't remember any of it. 
Listen, I'm a minor in Spanish in undergrad. And since I haven't used it, it's like almost gone. Almost gone. And now I went to France last year to visit my friend, Marsha, and I didn't speak the language. I I will admit when I went to the on the trip, I defaulted to this American arrogance, I'll admit it, and thinking, oh, you know what, it'll be okay. (laughs) And she'll be my mouthpiece. And it just took a couple hours of that for me to feel like a freaking idiot. (laughs) Because I was so embarrassed for myself that I didn't take the time to even learn the basics. I mean, I knew how to say like, please and thank you, you know, that stuff. But just how do you go to the bathroom? Where's the train? Just basic things. Get me from the airport (laughs) to the 7th arrondissement. I couldn't communicate. And that was a disservice to me. So as soon as I got back, I started on Duolingo and every day practicing French. And it was amazing how much I was soaking in, soaking up and soaking in. And it made me feel confident. And now I can communicate to her, even though, you know, she's from the U.S., so she speaks English. But I'll send a couple notes in French just to kind of train my brain to think differently. So it's never too late. It's never too late. The, 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 mm-hmm. the world literally is your oyster. You don't have to be conditioned into thinking that it's anything but. You mentioned the contributions of Black people to this country. And I wanted to get your opinion on like the argument that Black people who leave are leaving other Black people to deal with the messes here or that um, they don't want to leave because our ancestors built this country and like we're entitled to it. What do you what do you kind of make of those type of arguments. I've heard that from people in the group. I've heard that from people in my family and I have my own opinion and it's okay because I'm all right if it's popular or not popular. But in my mind, we are stolen people who are trying to live and build a life on stolen land. This land was inhabited by the indigenous people who have been relegated to different parts of this country and whose history has been all but erased. And the plight of, you know, who they call Native Americans, but how can you call them Native Americans when (laughs) America was wasn't a thing. <laughs> it wasn't a thing, right? So I don't I don't I try not to call them that, but just to identify mm-hmm. for people. But the indigenous people that inhabited their land and had their land stolen from them are the people who are here. We, those of us like myself, who can trace our ancestry back to those that were formerly enslaved, yes, they built this country. Tra- chattel slavery existed. And it was horrific. And I just don't feel, in my opinion, it's like we were kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And so I look at it this way. And again, I know it's probably not a popular thought, but, you know, if you were in, if you were growing up and you were with your parents, who you thought were your parents, and you had siblings And you looked a little different from your siblings and your parents said, okay, these are the rules. And the other kids, they break them all the time, but they get all the dessert. They get all the goodies. They get anything they want. And you don't break any rule. You go above and beyond to be, to work twice as hard and you only Mm -hmm. get half as much only to wake up one day and realize you were kidnapped. No matter how hard you try, you're never going to be treated like the other kids. Mm. Do you choose to stay with your kidnapper and fit in? Or do you say, deuces, I'm out of here? Right, right. 
So that's how I feel. Like I said, it might not be popular with some, but (laughs) that's how I've kind of wrapped it up. It is what it is. Yeah. So um, at what point would you say you realized you were um, on the right path in terms of planning your planning a breast? Like what what was it that said, okay, this is what I should be doing or this is the path that I do want my life to be on? Um, When I realized I was on the right path, um, hmm, I don't know. I felt like. So for me, I had a job in corporate America. I had already set my sights on making my black sit in 2023. And in my mind, I originally was going to, because I was working for a multinational, transition to another role in another country. And then there were multiple doors that closed in that direction. And I had to think of something different. So then I started to devise my plan. I knew that at the halfway mark, which is 2020, I needed to get even more serious. So I hired a financial planner and we were going through scenarios because I wanted to structure my finances in such a way to enable me to leave. And then doing all the work to get my my family and friends on board. But I knew it, it was the right decision because I felt it in my spirit, first and foremost. And then also I was having a lot of physical challenges that were signaling to me that the life that I was living was not enough. It wasn't in, I wasn't living my best life. Yes, I was traveling the world you know, yes, I was living in a nice place and I drove a nice car and all that other stuff. And that's all fine. But having stomach issues, not being able to sleep, having to uh, putting on weight, you know, all of those physical manifestations let me know that I, like I said, this part wasn't a bad thing to travel, but I was using it as an outlet to escape and kind of manage and deal Mm -hmm. with the things that in my immediate environment, primarily my work environment, that were stressful and I was out of alignment. And so I knew I was on the right path when I made the bold decision to step back and leave that job, even though that was my dream job, to bet on me. And I knew that at that time when I made that decision that I still had three years <laughs> before I was going to leave, mm-hmm. but I stepped out on faith and now I'm a year out from when I made that decision. And to be honest, it's been the best year, you know, COVID aside, you know, from a personal growth perspective, definitely from a financial perspective. <laughs> um, and so I discovered about myself, and I wish I had learned that earlier, is when I bet on me, then I can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't matter what job title I have or anything like that. Who I am, what I know, what I can do, my abilities and capabilities, that can't ever be taken away from me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I know I'm on the right path. And now with having this growing and thriving community of other people who either have made the move abroad, who are considering move abroad, moving abroad, that just reinforces that this is the right decision. Mm-hmm. And now to be in a position to help create and open pathways to people to get educated about how they can do it. I'm always excited when I go in the group and someone puts their black sit and posts their date or is showing me a picture that they're at the airport or another uh, member who just landed yesterday in New Zealand with his family. My heart feel fills with joy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't feel like, oh, I played a role in that and or like, oh, I wish this was me tomorrow. No, I I do backflips because I say, yes, that's one more. That's one more. That's one more. That's so great. So um, where are you now in your Blackset journey? Just generally, because I know there's a lot that goes into planning to leave the country. So where would you say you are now generally in your journey to planning it? 
Um, so my daughter is in uh, high school, and so she is a sophomore, and I she graduates in June of 2023. So my intent is to leave once she gets settled in college. So it'll probably be around August of 2023. So in that journey where I am right now, I've been working with my financial planner, getting my finances structured. And I have been, of course, leading Blacksit Global and also launching my upcoming podcast marketing course because people always want to know <laughs> how I was able to get that, you know, and I say air quotes success with the show, but podcasting is new for me. Being a digital marketer is what I'm trained to do. Mm -hmm. So it was like, okay, you know what, let me take what I know as a marketer and apply that to this and then see what happens. And so I'm going to be bringing, you know, sharing my talents and skills and helping people do that. And then, you know, once my daughter graduates in 2023, I will um, move my things to Florida where my mom lives and stay with her for a couple months just to get her settled. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be making my my first step. But, um, you know, and sell, selling my belongings along the way and doing that housekeeping that needs to be done. But uh, I'm excited, you know, because there's so mm -hmm. much, there's no regret. Because here's the thing, you can always come back, you know. You can always come back. If if it doesn't work out, quote unquote, work out for whatever reason that is, you can always come back. And realistically, most people who move abroad do come back to visit their family or, you know, God forbid, a family member takes ill or passes away. You know, there may be reasons, obviously, to come back. Mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I'm not planning to come back too much other than visits. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm excited about all of the things that I've been putting in place. So for each year, I have a benchmark. So this year, my task was hiring a financial planner. And then I cut my expenses by $1,000 a month mm -hmm. because I moved to a smaller apartment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And made some other uh, adjustments with different things like insurance. We're in COVID. I'm not driving. So <laughs> I don't need to have that, you know, big insurance. You know, I changed my internet plan. I changed a whole lot of things because I realized it was like, okay, what adjustments can I make? And that and ended up being like over $1,000 in savings. So multiply it by 12, that's $12,000 right there, mm -hmm. right? So people worry about not being able to be resourced. But if you look under the cushions or kick the tires, I'm sure you will find enough loose change that it can really make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that was actually going to be my next and almost final question uh, was if you have any advice or recommendations for someone who may be interested in, you know, planning, starting to plan a black sit. Yes. Uh, aside from doing the mental preparation, I think anything you can do to put yourself on a strong financial footing is key. You know, I am a proud Black woman who came from the boogie down and had, you know, not a family that had a lot of money. I, you know, have been everything. I've had awards. I've also been homeless. <laughs> mm -hmm. I've had, you know, jobs. I've also been laid off. I've been married. I also had a lot of divorce debt, <laughs> right? But yet I sit today very comfortable, very comfortable in my own skin, very comfortable about my finances because I did the work to get educated. I would go to the library and take out books about the stock market, listen to different podcasts like Dave Ramsey and Chris Hogan and go through that program and educate myself. And so once I was able to kind of fill in the gaps that of the things that we should have learned in school, like financial literacy and things like that, I felt empowered. And then I was able to develop and devise a plan and a strategy. And then 
I've been able to manage my finances and get them to a good place. But then I knew to get to that next level, I needed to be with someone who had more knowledge than me. And that's why I took the step of hiring a financial planner. So what I would say is find and arm yourself with information so that you're empowered and you make decisions from a place of empowerment, but also be open to the fact that when you need assistance, don't be so prideful (laughs) that you can't ask for assistance because that's going to help you move to the next level, whether it be getting uh, an expat coach, getting into a group like Blacks at Global, Mm -hmm. or taking a, a move abroad course like I did, that's where you're going to move the ne- the needle through education. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So that was a great way to end. Um, can you tell people where to find find you if they want to look for you on the internet? Sure. So for Blacksit, you can find me at Blacksit Global online at blacksitglobal.com. Our Instagram is at blacksitglobal. My personal Instagram handle is Krishan Wright. And I'm also, I have my own website, KrishanWright.com. And you can find information about me as a podcaster and as a digital marketer. And so, yeah, you can always Google search me because you'll, you'll find everything else in between. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, Krishan. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too. If you want to keep up with me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Not The Wifey Type. Until next time, I'm reminding you to belong to yourself.